Welcome to Wise Health for Women Radio with Linda Prater. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Each week with intriguing guests and topics, we'll bring you fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging a shift to new, healthier perspectives. Wise Health for Women Radio, helping women thrive. And now here's your host, Linda Prater. Welcome to Wise Health for Women Radio. We're delighted that you have joined us today about a very tough topic that many of you have experienced and what we believe needs more discussion. We're going to talk today to Marilee McLean, and we're going to talk about how good, loving mothers who are trying to protect their children in less than ideal circumstances are not being given their voice in the courts or even the outcomes that they're seeking. And we're talking about everything from domestic violence to parental alienation syndrome and and usually conflict within the family, uh, greater family or the immediate nuclear family. And Marilee, I am so pleased to welcome you to Wise Health for Women Radio. Good morning. It's a pleasure, Linda. Thank you for having me on. You're so welcome. I think that most of us know someone or have experienced a lot of what your book, Prosecuted But Not Silenced, which is about courtroom reform for sexually abused children. They've heard of it. They've seen it. Heaven knows, you know, we've seen the Archdiocese report that came out a couple of weeks ago. There's some really scary things happening in the world that are not fair or just. And often the courts, which are supposed to be blind to most bias, have an interesting take on things. And I would just love to have you start with, you know, how and why did you come to write this book and how big a problem is this? Well, Linda, I'd first like to say this is absolutely an epidemic numbers. I get calls every day from women all across the United States and internationally as well with the same identical uh, happenings in the court where they cannot protect their children from abuse. Most of these cases are domestic violence cases that have moved into the abuse of the children. And I happen to be one of those mothers. Um, Over 25 years ago, I fought in the court system to protect my little girl who was sexually abused by her father. I had full custody of my daughter. I had divorced him when she was six months old. I had been in a domestic violence marriage. I'd been married for eight years before I had a child. Um, But back in those days, you didn't hear about domestic violence. You thought it was a woman with a black eye and beaten and whatever. But I was being very emotionally abused and then also physical abuse. But I made up my mind to leave him once I was pregnant. And um, it took me, uh, well, six months after she was born, I started filing for a divorce. And it was a very um, hard divorce. I was stalked. I was emotionally abused. It It was horrible. But... That was nothing compared to what came into it later, where my daughter was two and a half and the daycare provider brought up to my attention that she was displaying behavioral things with another little boy in a playhouse that was in the backyard. Mm. And um, and then not within very short time after that, my daughter disclosed to me in detail that no child could come up with what was happening with her dad. And I called my sister, who was a nurse in Children's Hospital. I said, what do I do? She said, When she wakes up in the morning, ask her what happened. And if she repeats the same thing, don't mention her dad's name and just see if she repeats the same thing. And Mm -hmm. she did. And I took her to a pediatrician. And from there is where the real nightmare began with social services. So a lot of these cases, I I was um, met with social services and um, and then a GAL. And he had supervisors for a very short time. And the GAL is a guardian item for the child, a lawyer for the child. Right. And she met me with disdain. And you see the father who's, you know, these men, as you well know, and you've heard a lot of this, is they're very charismatic, charming, educated. They're not necessarily the boogeyman behind the bush or the Mm -hmm. the stranger on the street that's abusing a child. And I watched him with the social worker through this window, and you could tell she just thought, oh, what a great father. Well, the GAL met me, and she had four things she wanted to discuss with me. And they took me into a room, small room, and interrogated me for a solid hour. Why would your daughter continue to say this if you weren't coaching her? I'm thinking, because maybe it's going on. And then the next question, then the father's in there. uh, I want you to do separation counseling and him to do one. And I thought, well, that's weird. I've been trying to get away from this man for two years, and he's been stalking me and abusing me. But I have to sit in the same room and discuss our marriage. It's been over for over two years. 
And so I thought, strange, I didn't say anything. And the next thing she said, um, I said, well, have you read Dr. Baker's report, who was a psychologist on the case that stated my daughter was being sexually abused and had mm-hmm. been exposed to sexual stimuli. And she said, uh, she said, no, Dr. Baker's report didn't say anything. And I thought, I just had read what? it the day before. But you feel like you're going crazy. And then the next thing was, this is parental alienation syndrome. And I said, parental alienation? I said, I've been over backwards for this man to be in her life. I had a great relationship with my own father, and I wanted her to have a chance to have the same. And she said, this child's going into foster care. And she put my daughter what? in foster care. Wait, yeah. Take a step back. Take a step back, if you wouldn't mind, please. When you discovered this and the pediatrician examined and they have a duty to report to social services. Is that right. correct? Exactly. Okay. So they reported this. And mm-hmm. since it was obvious that this was corroborated, how is it? I mean, I believe every word you're saying because the court system can be so circular, but how is it that you had to have separation counseling when you were already divorced for two years? Yeah, it, it was sick. I mean, honestly, our court system does this thing where they want to keep um, the, the father and the mother have to be involved and right. in, co- in cooperative, but you can't be cooperative with an abuser. That's what the court does not understand. You don't try to make somebody that's been abused by someone cooperate with them in the best interest of the child. It's the parent that's more able to nurture the relationship with the other parent. Well, obviously, that woman who's being abused and her child's being abused is not going to want to nurture that relationship with that father. So that's really a hard push right there. They don't look at the safety of the child first. And that is what we're pushing for right now in the U.S., and internationally, but my, mostly right here now, is the safety of the child first, not the best interest of the child, the safety. And that's not happening. That's interesting. Happening. I'm glad you stated the difference between those two, because I think we assume that everyone will look out for the children. I think we know from experience oh, yeah. that it doesn't. And yeah. what? so was it the GAL who told you this? The GAL um, These four absolutely things. interrogated me. So like, it was the GAL. Like it was a GAL, guardian line, lawyer for the child. She right. interrogated me for probably a solid hour and a half, like nothing I'd ever seen on TV on any law show. Why any- didn't she read the report from the physician? She, Dr. Baker, she read the report and stated there was no abuse. She had been on the case for three months. I'm, I'm working full time, taking care of a little girl who's been sexually abused, dealing with the trauma of all this. Absolutely. And she's. He's been working behind the scenes with this GAL. I didn't even know she was on the case. These See, guys. This is the part I don't understand. In, yeah, I, I don't it's understand this in courtrooms because there's not supposed to be this divide and conquer thing going on. Mm-hmm. And you you are correct that in many cases there is a charisma. And I think honestly that, that they're not knowingly lying. They honestly believe their own truth, which makes them very difficult to counter because if they well, believe it, they could pass a lie detector test because they're right. psychotic. Um, they're, they're and that's my it. word. That's not a technical term. No, I know. But I, I say, you know, I always say when I speak on this, I'll speak at battered mothers conferences or uh, at international conferences. And I say, you know, there it's between a psychopath, sociopath and a narcissist. I mean, yes. really yes. dealing and, and I don't believe judges are trained to understand that, and they wouldn't. And so you get in there, and they are working the system. But it's not just them, because the system is failing. They're not just failing because you have this psychopath coming in and working the system. It's set up uh, where there's failure because they're not looking for the safety of the child. So in this instance with the GAL doing what she did, she said this child's going into foster care. She had a foster care home lined up before I'd even walked in that morning. Okay, now, now stop right there. We all know that the foster system has huge problems and that is usually not the best course of events for children especially when they have two parents so how in heaven's name did they take this out of your parental hands both of you at this point well the the main fact is linda is not just out of both the parents if if one parent is the sole caretaker and he had minimal supervised visits Oh, so you were not a 50-50 custody arrangement. Oh, no, no, no. He had minimal visits because she was very young, and he didn't have hardly any visitation. He had maybe nine hours a week. It just wasn't a a lot. He didn't really want to be with her in the beginning anyway. It was just (sighs) – so bottom line was – she wasn't, she was taking her out of her primary caretaker. That that's, that's traumatic for a child. That is, that is a trauma right there in, in, in itself. And 
and removing her, if the parents lived together and you had something like this going on, I can see having to remove the child, but the parent was living with the nurturing parent, not the parent that was abusing. And you don't remove the child from the home and traumatize her like this. So she was very traumatized from that. What, and, you, you have about two minutes left before we take a first break. What are the steps that, I mean, is your state where, I don't know where it is, but, and you don't need to say it if you don't want to, but no, are states no. regular on this or routine? Is there a standardization of how the behavior goes in terms of if, if there's a child abuse, a report, et cetera, these are the steps that happen or is it? Case by case. I think it's more case by case. I think that that GAL really overstepped her bounds by doing what she did and was very, very wrong about doing that. But I have heard lots of cases where this is happening, where moms are having their children ripped out of their arms and handed over to the abuser. So no, this is happening in every state and it's rampant. It's not just a little bit. I get, as I said earlier in the conversation and uh, there, I get, Hundreds of calls. I, I mean, for the last 25 years, it's constant. I've never seen anything like it. And before, you didn't have the internet where women could get together and contact or whatever. Mm-hmm. There was no way. I testified before Congress on this issue with 10 other mothers from across the nation with identical cases to mine. They could be attorneys, doctors from every walk of life. It didn't matter where you were coming from. You're losing. So now it's it's not it's not just in Colorado. It's in every state. It's interesting, though, because in terms of the GAL, there don't seem to be many checks and balances on the GAL. We have about 30 seconds left. Can you talk to that and then we'll continue after the break? Absolutely. It's not just the GALs. It's the custody evaluators. It's uh, people involved within the court system, the professionals. They do no risk assessment. There's never been any new trainings. They aren't taking into account any new research as the ACE study or uh, Saunders study, which I can go into later, or Joan Meyer's study, which is a new one, but but they are not trained and, and, and not just on sexual abuse or child abuse, they're not professionals. They have no real training on those areas of domestic violence and child abuse or child sexual abuse. Uh-huh. Perfect time to stop for the break. Um, we are talking with Marilee McLean about children who have been abused and the court system, which actually continues on with that unfortunate abuse in a different way. We're going on a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. The New York Times reported that the benefits of eating a solid breakfast are hard to dispute. They cited emerging research that suggests another advantage to consistently eating breakfast is a reduced risk of type 2 diabetes. A study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition showed that people who skipped breakfast on a regular basis had a 21% higher risk of developing diabetes. We know that those who omit breakfast suffer setbacks in memory, mood, and energy levels. And eating the all-important first meal of the day is thought to stabilize blood sugar throughout the day. So choose a healthy and nutritious breakfast to start your day and to decrease your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. We're back and we're talking with Marilee McLean. Marilee, once the courts put your daughter, and I believe she was two and a half at the time, into the foster care system, what happened after that? Uh, it was such major trauma. I mean, I can't begin to tell you. I, I just remember the day that they did that. And I was, um, they, she said she was going to put her in foster care. I was totally taken back. I had just hired an attorney the day before I called him and he told the GAL, Doris, you put that child in foster care and I will have your ass. He was just sick. And, um, she said, this child's going into foster care. And I went into another room and I lied my head down on a desk. And I, I mean, I would, I wanted to scream, you know, with everything in my whole body. But I figured if I did that, they would say, look at this mother's emotionally inept. We've got to take her away from her child. They'd have an excuse. So I held it together as much as I could. Obviously, I was sobbing, though. And the social worker comes up and taps me on the shoulder very coldly and says, you can go say goodbye to your daughter now. And I got up. I've never oh, been with my, my baby. Gosh. And I, 
walking so down. Pause the- on that oh. moment for a second. I mean, honestly, for all mothers out there, fathers out there who this is happening to, think about that. I mean, you breeze right past this. This is your life. You talk on this all the time. You're an advocate. You are a subject matter expert, unfortunately, on this topic. But saying goodbye to your child who has been unjustly taken from you and put in the foster care system, I, I'm overwhelmed. Oh, Linda, I was Tell very... me what you felt like. Can you do that? Yeah, absolutely. I I got up and I couldn't feel my legs. Um, there was a gray mist around me. I know I was yes. in shock. And I'm walking down the hallway and I could hear them echoing in the background, the social workers and the GAL, look at her, look at her. She can't handle it. She can't say goodbye to her daughter. And I just kind of put my hand out to the side and said, oh, yes, I can. And because I want to make sure I could say goodbye to my baby. She didn't know, you know, we were going roller skating that day. So she didn't know I was not going to be there. And I went in and I I, I knew she knew I was upset because I, I really hid everything from her because I was trying to keep her as healthy and as strong as possible. Mm-hmm. And I just told her mommy had to go to work. And they had the police escort me out. And I drove directly to Dr. Baker's office and the one that stated she was being sexually abused. And when I got in, my face was covered with makeup. I was a mess. And she said, what the heck happened to you? And I said, they just took my baby from me. You know the truth. You fight for us. And she was sick. And she said, I did. They would do something like this. And I told them, absolutely not. So anyway, from that point on, my daughter continues to be abused. He gets his visitations are removed to unsupervised. So GAL pushes that through. Uh, she takes to that- unsupervised. So the the abuse is happening. Right. You went from supervised visits at nine hours a week to unsupervised after abuse was not only claimed, but confirmed. Well, he really, I, it was a fewer hours than that when he had supervised visits. He just, his regular visitation wasn't much because he didn't really make that much of an effort to see her okay. until this age. Um, so how old was she now? When I'll buy the, she was two and a half when I lost her okay. um, to foster care. Then th- during that time, more abuse comes out on my daughter at the foster care <sighs> home. And, and she's at the foster it. home or she's with relying to the, to the foster care parent what's happening to her. And the GAL refuses to listen and social services refuses to listen. And the actually was a daycare provider at this point couldn't take it anymore because she was she would scream through the night. No, daddy, don't. Owie, owie, it's bad and screaming all night long like that. So the daycare provider was exhausted and said, you got to do something with what this baby's going through. She needs her mommy. And so. Anyway, they end up deciding to put her back in my home. And then if I brought up the abuse again, I would lose her. Well, I went to court. I wasn't in court for one year, six months, a week, nothing like that. I was in, I would be in court for weeks and months at a time. Mm-hmm. But I was in court for 10 years fighting for my little girl. Mm-hmm. And um, at the age of four, by this point, now you've got to imagine, they've given him way more time with her. More and more, the more abuse came out, the more time the GAL went in to give with her father. And ask for more time for her father. Pretty soon it was like I was hardly seeing her because he was getting more time. Now stop and for I, a second. Why wasn't he criminally investigated this, as a pedophile? This, this goes into family court. It becomes a family matter. This is not a family matter. This is a criminal matter. Right. If you or I were raped, Linda, it would be in criminal court. That's what My I'm daughter's asking. case should okay. have been in criminal court. I mean, she had... Uh, physical evidence at the age of four and a half, the top doctors in the state of Colorado from the child advocacy team and protection team mm-hmm. wrote a letter to my judge stating the abuse of my child and to please contact them concerning the sexual abuse of this child. And the judge threw it out. The police reports, I had three different police reports, three hospital reports, and everything was thrown out. Uh, you can't even imagine. I didn't have one. Yes, judge. I can imagine because I I've, seen, I've seen courtrooms judges. do bizarre things. Yeah. Um, but, but I was just curious because it seems as though, you know, child abuse is rampant far more than is ever reported, but from, and it, and it's often a family member, but you would think that the courts would have moved to a more enlightened view of the child is now older. The pattern is there. It's being shown by the foster care system and the people, it wasn't anybody with a vested interest for you that was saying the same exact corroborating things. I'm so sorry for you. I, I, I can't even imagine. 
Well, I have to say it's one of the worst nightmares anybody could go through. Not just the nightmare of knowing your child's being hurt and you can't protect them. And then being taken from you and given to that abuser is the ultimate of abuse and re-victimization re of both of us. And I guess, um, you know, I have a great family. I, I was brought up with a wonderful, wonderful parents. My Her grandparents adored her. She was not allowed to see her family, her mm. grandparents, anybody associated that knew about the abuse, which was all the people that were trying to protect her, she was isolated from. Mm. So in other words, what they did is they took a Classic. child who was being abused and isolate her and shut her down with that abuser. And so now she goes into being dissociative because she can't right. live in a situation she's in unless she dissociates from it. Right, right. So, and, and then at that point, um, I, I lost her for eight years, supervised visits. I was treated as a hardened criminal. Now, your hardened criminals do not get supervised visits the way I had. And you go through hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees, and you're bankrupted, and then you're in a I was in an eight by 10 foot room where I got to see my daughter one hour a week and watch her suffer like you can't believe and not be able to do anything, but try to be a therapist for that one hour and give her as much love and support as I could. I let her know I was out there fighting for her, but I couldn't talk to her about anything. So she how say, is it that that isn't parental alienation? Oh my gosh, exactly. I was labeled with PAS by, by Doris Trular, took it into the course. I was labeled the only reason I lost my child, not because I wasn't a great mother. I was an excellent mother. I lost my child due to PAS, parental alienation syndrome, which was brought forward by Dr. Richard Gardner in the early 80s. This okay. guy said he, he made up his own theory. It's junk science. It's not approved by the AMA, American Medical Association, nor the American Psychological Association. However, his theory went out and he sent his book self-published to every court in the nation and they took on his theory. Today, that theory is still going. It may not be as PAS because they know they're not supposed to use that in the courts anymore. Okay. But it's used as parental alienation, and, and they bring it in in other ways. They'll say the mother's a master. They make up any other way they can to still bring it in as alienation. Those women that are being labeled as alienators that are trying to protect their children from abuse are losing their children to the abuser. So I was labeled with PAS by two evaluators here in Colorado who took a document to a judge on a Monday morning with the docket full. And I was lobbying in Washington, D.C., trying to get help for my child. Okay. I went all the way to the top. And they removed her from me with no grounds whatsoever. But at their document, what they said is I had PAS and that I should not be allowed to be around my child. And I lost her over the phone, ex parte hearing, emergency hearing. I called my attorneys um, from Washington, D.C., and they said, uh, the, the paralegal said, Marilee, the judge is on your case right now and you're losing your child. And I said, what? I said, how can they, they're taking your child from you? I said, my God, they cannot do this. How can they do this? She said, Marilee, can't talk there. And I said, let me talk to my attorneys. You tell them not to take that phone call with the judge. She said, they have to. It's the judge. I said, I don't care. You tell them not to take that phone call. They cannot do this. And I lost my child over the phone. Ex parte emergency hearing. That means Did you walk in back into the hill and the hearing? And say this just happened, or were you oh, not no, given I that opportunity? On an airplane home. I just got on the plane and I went into the lavatory, and when those engines roared, my God, I roared the whole way home. I, I, I can't see the pain. And when I got home, I uh, immediately called my attorneys, and I had lost her. And I knew I'd lost her. Even when when that phone hung up, I knew it was it was done right there. And um, so for me. I believe that these women are in this for long periods of time and their children are. And if you lose your child, you're really not necessarily getting them back because most of these cases they don't. Of all the cases that I went through and through all these years and all the women that I've been affiliated with that have been in this situation, um, most of them didn't get their kids back. And the ones that, well, say I got my daughter back when she was 12 and a half, but for eight years I had supervised visits and was treated as a criminal. And that is the most damaging thing you can put a child through. I mean, taking her from her primary care parent, the one that was trying to protect her and make her live with her abuser, there's nothing worse. And so the trauma is not just the sexual abuse of her dad. The trauma is is the system as well. That trauma is huge, what they it, did to her. It is. It's, it's massive. And, and we're going on a, a, another break. And we'll come back and talk further about this. I would say it's it, there will be people listening who say this can't happen. Exactly. I, I know so many court cases that are illogical. There's a lot of power. As um, an attorney I once knew said, you know, we are talking about a man in a dress 
who stands up there with absolute power. And it's very difficult to change judges, to change uh, attorneys, to change GALs. There are not a lot of steps that, as a citizen, you can take. And oftentimes the response is, what's the matter? Didn't you have a good lawyer? And that incenses me because it should be about truth, proof, and evidence, but it, it sometimes is not. And so beyond all of this major trauma that you're talking about, there's so much more. And we have to go on a break, but we, I promise you we will come back and continue to talk further with Marilee about steps to take to prevent and to help cope if this sort of thing happens to you because you are not alone. You're listening to Wise Health for Women Radio. We'll be right back. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Looking younger and feeling younger seems to be a top priority of countless Americans. There are several age-defying creams and lotions to help you feel and look younger. But the best and easiest way to look and feel more youthful is to lose weight. If you are carrying around extra weight, whether it's 10 pounds or 100 pounds, the preeminent way to look younger is to lose that weight and to live an active life. Walking around with that excess weight not only adds years of wear and tear to you, it also decreases your energy level, so you act older. By getting rid of that weight, you put bounce back in your step and feel and look so much better. It's not all about how you look either. The most important aspect is that you improve your health and live a healthy life. So if you're searching for ways to look younger, don't head for the plastic surgeon's office. Head for the gym instead. Welcome back. We're talking to Marilee McLean. And Marilee, clearly your story is, it's provocative, it's compelling, it's heartbreaking. And you have taken a terribly adverse situation, and yet you chose to become an advocate and to write your book. And first of all, I have to commend you for that because that's not easy when you have been beaten down by not only the situation itself and then again by the courts and you're living with this and you lived without your daughter for eight years and we'll come back to that perhaps in the the last segment but talk about why you wrote the book how you wrote the book what information you can put forth and and how you can guide women and children in a way that will lead to hopefully and i put air quotes around that hopefully better outcomes huge question but take it wherever you like sure um thank you for all that too um that means a lot to me but i um i started writing my book when she was two and a half when i saw the system failing failing um and the other reason i started writing it was because i was afraid he may kill me and emotionally i didn't know that i could make it through this stuff because it was so heart-wrenching and so horrific so I wanted other people to know what was going on. And I definitely wanted my daughter to know if I wasn't here, what was really happening. So that was the main reason I started writing it. And then as I kept writing, I wrote it for, you know, I didn't publish this thing for 20 some years because I was waiting until she was older to publish it. Sure. But I documented everything. And I think that's the most important thing these women can do out there is to document. I got a big black legal binder like a lawyer. And I put all the important motions in there. So if I went to a senator or a congressman or to a new attorney to try to get them to represent me, I had my case down like you couldn't believe. Or the media, because I had lots of media coverage in my case. I'm sure. So, so I was able to express myself and explain what was happening because I had everything documented. So you go, bam, 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 you have it together. And that way, people don't look at you and go, how could that happen? It's right there in black and white. So that was it. And then the book in itself... I uh, continue to write now. It became a therapeutic tool also for me. But in the end of it, what I did is it's the emotional story, which is absolutely impactful. And most people tell me they read my book, which is over 400 pages in two days, but they don't want to put it down. And and the reason is, is because the story is incredible and it's hard to read, but it, it's an emotional impact. That's all I can say. But the research and the legal is behind it. 
So what I did is I put the research in there, the new research today and all the important information and then the legal. So you, you can be reading something in my book and go, oh, that couldn't happen. It says go to addendum A and there's the police report or there's the judge's order. And so everything's documented by what I've said. Mm. And so in that way, it's a really good resource for women out there going through this. It's a good resource for judges, lawyers, psychologists, social workers, GALs, all those people should be reading this book so they understand what's happening in the system and to make a difference and to stop what's happening. We look at, I always say this, it's like people were so upset about, um, I think it was Sanders, Dan Sanders, Sandusky, the guy from Pennsylvania, the coach. Oh, right, right. Yeah. And people get upset about the Catholic priest, but our biggest crime of all that's happening in this nation is our own family courts. 58,000 children a year that are forced to go live with their abusers. 58,000. That is a low number. That was done 10 years ago. That stat, I believe it's much higher. Well, I'll take you one further. I work a lot with the military families. I work with, uh, well, suffice it to say, I work with a lot of people whose, whose beginnings were formed in abusive relationships. And unfortunately, it's a trickle down. And to break out of that cycle to make sure that they are recovered as best as they can. Trauma is trauma is trauma, but there may always be PTS from certain, and I don't like the word triggers, but I, I know that that's a familiar word for people, but there will be memories that crop up at times that will impact future relationships. And this can go on and on, making them have far more challenges with being a parent themselves, with forming normal relationships. And the distrust that's formed in a family relationship that is supposed to be your nuclear family and the most supportive place you have when it's not. So I have to ask you this question. Who supported you during all this? Sorry, that's hard. Um, I had great parents, great mom and dad. They didn't live here in Colorado with me, but they were very supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, I had good friends. I had a really good therapist that was working alongside of me that knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really think a lot of it came from my upbringing that I could could withstand this was because I had a lot of self-esteem. I was brought up with, you know, thinking uh, one thing that was bad is thinking everything was good. So I learned that very quickly going through this. But um, I did have that good support system. And I think that's huge. I, a lot of these mothers don't have their families. Mm-hmm. They don't have friends. They're just completely isolated and alone. The only thing that saved those mothers is the Internet because now they're connecting that way. Mm-hmm. So I say that helps. Because I, I, I think it's impossible to go through something like this without faith or family or friends or, oh, absolutely. you know, and my anything. I obviously had faith, too. And oh, I, I was, I was guessing I so because I got angry, you know, because I right. think, my God, why would God let this continue to happen? And the way um, I would go to court and I would be punished so much in the courtroom um, and just torn to smithereens, I was right. thinking... How, why would God allow this, you know, to continue? And why would he allow my daughter to be raped? Why, why? I don't get it. And after a while, you get so beaten down, you kind of get angry at God. But I never He's let okay. He can take it. Yeah. I he never can take it. But I think it's pretty obvious why you were put through this experience. Through this adversity, you are able to help so many other people. And I also think it sheds light on our court and justice system that is supposed to work on facts but so often there's emotional bias. There's all kinds of ex parte relationships and ex parte conversations uh, that, that are not supposed to happen that do. And there's nothing you can do to stop those sorts of things. It's an impossible solution. It works for most people, but it doesn't work for everyone. And, and I'll, I'll come back to it. it okay. Are you, well, I'll come back right? to what I said before is, the the words that always, you know, make me nuts is what's the matter? Didn't you have a good attorney? And, oh, and that know. that is just not the way justice is supposed to work. But but come back to this children part to for your 
you knew what the long-term repercussions were for this. You're far too intelligent not to have done the research with all these experts that oh, you yeah. have and all of this uh, discussion that you're having. You knew that you would be looking at a lifelong relationship of trying to help your daughter through this trauma and mm-hmm. yourself through this trauma. And yeah. it's um, it, most people associate PTSD with our combat soldiers and our first responders, etc. But trauma is trauma is trauma. And we don't have a good system of trauma-based care in this country. Exactly. And that's what needs to happen in the courts. They need to have right. risk assessment with these psychologists and trauma care. They And, and with the, the, the GALs, with the all of them need to understand trauma because this is what this is about, trauma care. It shouldn't be a new thing that people are no. into. Um, I must say in the military, they're getting better at it because it's a, a large group of people that they can follow very easily. But in the civilian courts, that's that's very difficult and disparate. So you said 58,000 children. Yeah. Is a this year. family abuse or general abuse that, we, that is no, reported? No, it's child abuse. Child okay. abuse, child abuse, child sexual abuse. Ugh. Yeah, so I, I I just think it's sad that we're not looking at the the risk assessment of this and the trauma of this and and yes, so I, why aren't we? Why we, isn't the risk assessment being looked at as a tool that could truly help because it's black and white? You know, when you be, it should be a standard when you go into court. It shouldn't. First of all, family court is about it doesn't have to have evidentiary hearings. It doesn't right. have to bring the evidence in. So it's up to the discretion of the judge whether he allows that information in or not. And if he doesn't, you know, because of his own belief system right. or he believes that women are vindictive ex-wives or that women, mothers make this stuff up. Well, we've got studies out there that show it's 2%. So you're sending 98% of the children to live with their abuser because you believe 2% of the women are, are making this stuff up. Bottom line is that that judge needs to go with the safety of the child, like I've said 15 times on here. But the main thing is they need to have standards around their discretion, discretionary rule that they have discretionary rule. And and then furthermore, it doesn't belong in family court. It belongs in criminal court. But criminal court, you've got to be able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, right. obviously, in my case, that could have been proved. And the DA knew my child was being abused, but he said, let's see what that lower court judge does. And if he takes that child away from you, we will step in to do something. And he never did. They? did. No. No. So. Okay. So the risk assessment should be a standard. There should be um, there. As I mentioned earlier, changing a GAL, changing a judge, those are not easy things to do. There have to be cause and the judge has to be cooperative. The GAL has to be cooperative. So what you're also saying is that there needs to be far greater standardized training that Mm -hmm. is happening across the nation. And I have well, no idea. How is something like that enacted except through legislation? That's what it has to be. It has to be legislation. <clears throat> we have a um, one person that is doing the Safe Child Act, Barry Goldstein, and he has got it approved in three states, but it's where the, the judge has to look at the safety and the health of the child first okay. before determining anything. So the health of that child would be huge. It's like the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experiences, that was done by Dr. Vincent Folletti back in the 80s, mm-hmm. shows how the damage to these children. We know, we know it's, it's like 10 different avenues that can happen to a child as they're growing up, whether it's domestic violence, child abuse, divorce, whatever. And we know that we could save billions of dollars if we would use some preventive measures in this whole scenario. You have, um, we have right now, Joan Myers just did a study on alienation that shows how the courts are awarding these children to the abusers by these abusers using alienation as a way to get custody of their children. And then as they a don't weapon. child support. They don't right. have, and, and so this is, a, it is a weapon. So there's, there's so many things that have to be changed legislative wise, but really I believe personally. All right, hold all, that thought. We have to go on a break and okay. I want to hear what you believe in just a moment. <laughs> I'm so sorry. We're going on a break talking to Marilyn McLean. We'll be back right after these messages. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. It's baseball season, and many people are thinking about hot dogs. New research published in the journal Circulation 
found that eating one serving of processed meat a day was associated with a 42% higher risk of heart disease and a 19% increased risk of diabetes. Processed meats include hot dogs, bacon, deli meat, sausage, and salami. The culprit isn't just the saturated fat or cholesterol, it's the levels of sodium and chemical preservatives. Processed meats have about four times more sodium and 50% more nitrate preservatives than unprocessed meats. These new findings are another reason to limit your intake of meat, especially processed meats. Keeping your diet mainly full of vegetables, fruit, and whole grains will help you keep your weight down and your body healthy. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Welcome back. Marilee, right before the break, you said that you believe, and that we were talking about the system itself, and I had to cut you off for the break. So can you continue that sentence? Because we were talking all about training and risk assessments and legislation and the needs. And you were talking about Joan Meyer's study. Yeah, I, I, Joan Myers did that study on alienation, which really, I mean, she took 4,000 custody cases. Now, you have to understand that most of these cases um, aren't the parents that are out there trying to work that relationship out and they're doing what's right by their children or whether you're a stay-at-home dad or whatever, they work it out. These are the cases that are contested custody that are about abuse. And most of those cases are abuse cases. And those are the cases we're having problems with. So I don't believe that, you know, our, our legal system right here in Colorado, we have in the best interest of the interest of the child we also have the safety of the child and uh, domestic violence should be there well they're still not doing it they're still not abiding by that law so there's got to be some standards standards or discretion around the judges that they have to abide by the safety of the child and domestic okay. violence first that's number one good uh, but I think that that's social change. When the, when you hear on here, I'm sure you've heard tons about all of this with, with your shows that you do. But people think that's not happening in my home. That's right. happening over there. Well, believe me, this touches all of society. And so it is about social change. Mm -hmm. And women with the Equal Rights Amendment, I'm obviously a feminist and all for equal rights. And I love men still, too. But... Bottom line is equal rights. You don't have equal rights if you can't even keep your children safe. Let's take a look at that side of it. Okay. And let's get women on the back of this and really fighting for our real equal rights because we don't have them. You know, I, I'm going to come back to something that has always confused me. And this is the norm in most states or many states. And that's 50-50 custody, joint oh. custody. And I'll, I'll give you the analogy of a, of a boat, and it this has, you know, this goes back to biblical roots, saying honestly, you you need one person to steer the boat at a time, otherwise it's very confusing for the children, and decisions have to be made, and they can't be made by committee, not by two people who don't enjoy each other's company. That's putting it mildly, um, together anymore, and so. I find that this joint custody in so many cases that I know about has caused enormous problems to the point where the child comes and says, I need you to, you know, go petition to be the primary person. But you, you can't. In most states, they're, they want to keep it, quote, equal, as you said. And the social change says that, well, men for many years were not given that opportunity. I am and so, so glad you brought that up. Uh, well, I, you know, I, it, to me, it's just, it just doesn't make sense. You, you can't drive a car with two people. You need one person at one time, but somebody to make the decisions so that if there's a medical emergency, there's one decision maker. You, are, you can be in close contact with the other parent. In fact, co-parenting is a great idea if it works. But in many cases, it does not. And in some cases, it will not. Talk right. to it. Right. So, um, you know, they've really pushed this 50-50 thing in every state. And gosh, it looks great on paper. It does. Mm -hmm. and, and if it could be a perfect world, that would be really great. But that's not what we're talking about here. Not 50-50 with an abuser does not work ever, ever, ever. And so that is a problem. And so when you and it is hard on the kids, even if, even if there isn't abuse going on, it's hard on the kids. Sometimes I got to go here. I got to go there. I got that parent, that parent. 
And really, especially when they're little, I mean, we know from studies way back that that primary care attachment figure, you do not want to break that. That's so important for a child's welfare. Mm -hmm. It actually, they've done studies to show how it affects the brain. So why are we going against the research and the studies that prove what it does to a child's brain? Is it bureaucracy? Those abusers. Well, it is a bureaucracy, but it's 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 lack of education. Is it patriarchy? Sometimes I wonder. I'm not trying to uh, slam any men out there that that are good fathers. I'm not talking about the good fathers. These are not good fathers that I'm talking about. So, so you know, you don't want to automatically give somebody 50 percent, even if it was an abusive mother. She does not deserve 50 percent. If you're an abuser, you lost that right. That's it. You lost that right to be with that child. And if you are with that child, it should be supervised um, until that child's old enough to determine that they can handle that other parent. But now, as your child got to be older, when did they allow her to have a say in what was going on? She never had a say. Yeah, That's I know. I, you know. I was afraid you were going to say that. No, um, she did. Yeah, and, and, I, and I don't... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I don't know that I think it's patriarchy as much as the reason I brought up bureaucracy is that... Fomenting change in a bureaucracy is like pushing marbles uphill while walking on them. You you can't get traction. And the red tape gets in the way and the process gets in the way instead of the safety of the child, the logic of the situation, the truth, proof, and evidence, and all of those things. So I my personal experience with working with lots of agencies is that the bureaucracy gets in the way of change and change is not welcomed yeah it needs to be this needs to be a very uh fast done deal so we don't jeopardize generations and generations of children Mm -hmm. so you do agree with the fact that there is a cycle of abuse that can go on and and relationship issues coming forward right so i i have to ask this and you don't need the answer if you don't wish to but as you and your daughter forge forward how do you rebuild that trust after that loss of all those years together? Well, this is really, I know a lot of um, mothers that don't have their children, um, they, they lose, they disconnect, they lose their children completely. They, okay. You have to stay in those supervised visits. A lot of them can't emotionally and they can't afford it financially. But I think that's what my daughter hung on and I hung on. She never let go of me. Um, she used to tell me, I fly to your house at night, mommy, and I'm on the windowsill, but I'm always with you. And wow. when I got her home, I never, ever discussed the abuse with her. And I and I and all I did was try to get her back to normal and healthy as the best I could and have as many of her friends here and family here and, and just have a really great home life as much as I could get her back. And then, um, you know, she's had a very hard time going through all this. And, and who wouldn't? I mean, she's right. had a lot, a lot of trauma in her life. But she dissociated from it. And I told her, you see those files under my desk? That's your case. And when you're ready to deal with it someday, it's there for you. So I left it up to her to come to terms with what happened to her. Was she also in school at the time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She was in school um, from the whole time. I mean, I got her back when she was 12 and a half. Okay. I, 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 sh- I can share with you, Linda, um, to show her dissociation. She wrote this when she was 12 and a half, okay? Okay. I have it in my book. I'm just going to read it to you. It just says, and this kind of, anybody that's a psychologist, social, anyway, any person should understand where she's coming from with this poem. And it was very intelligent. And, and she says, I am a dreamer. I'm a dreamer lost in the world of logic and order. I wonder how big the universe really is. I hear the tinkling of fairies everywhere. I see an open ocean filled with mermaids diving in and out of the waves. I'm a dreamer lost in the world of logic and order. I pretend to glide in and out of the clouds with a flying unicorn. I feel that when I enter my world, everything is peaceful. I touch the barrier between the dream world and reality. I worry that someday my special world will collide with the real. I'm a dreamer lost in the world of logic and order. I understand that my dreams might never come true. I say that my world will last forever. I dream that I'm on a star looking down at the world. I try to keep my two worlds from becoming one. I hope my special world will never end, for it is my salvation from the troubles in life. I'm a dreamer lost in the world of logic and order. So she wrote that at 12 and a half. And and the things she writes today are incredible. And, um, you know, she is able in her expression 
to say what she feels and thinks. Do you think that sort of journaling um, has helped her? Well, I think that she's really, really smart. She's had a really hard time, like I said, because of the dissociation and mm -hmm. the trauma she's been through. But she is just now going through all of that. And so... And will continue to, I'm sure. Yeah. And so she's just now dealing with it. And... Um, so let's talk about how our listeners can get in touch with you to learn more. Your website is com, and that's Marilee, M-A-R-A-L-E-E, McLean, M-C-L-E-A-N.com. And I believe you said you also have two Facebook groups. I do. I have just my regular Marilee McLean, my Facebook page, and then Prosecuted But Not Silence page. Which is and the name of your book. Yeah name of my book and there's lots of information on that page as well and then there's also um you can get my book off of amazon or barnes and noble or i'll put it in the show notes for certain okay. okay well i think that what you've outlined is every mother's nightmare i i probably for fairness should say every parent's nightmare but i think it does happen in far greater numbers to mothers and there's no greater helplessness than you described and what happened to you, at least that's my opinion. And so I want to thank you for explaining this bigger problem than I had even realized. And your book is amazing and your daughter and you are amazing, but you have kept it together and you've kept it together for a purpose to help so many other people. And I'm so sorry you had to go through it, but I'm so grateful that you are open to talking about this and going on the Hill and talking about legislation. That's the only way change will make. You've got 30 seconds. Anything you'd like to add? No, I think you did a great show. I, I hope the listener out there gets this and will, you know, go, we have legislation that's going in California, uh, resolution 72. Um, and we've got lots of things going on. So we need the help of people going to the congressmen, the representatives and saying, Hey, we know this is going on. What are you doing about it? Fantastic. Marilee, thanks again. That website once more is Marilee McLean, M-A-R-A-L-E-E, McLean.com. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. It will prove invaluable to so many. I know that. And continue on. You're quite the warrior. Very proud to have talked with you today. Make it a great week. You're very welcome. All right. We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye now. Thank you for tuning in today. You can find more shows at wisehealthforwomenradio.com.